You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. I'm going to be reading from 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 to 34. It's on the back of your booklets if you want to read along. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel, and Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him, and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, hello. So good to see you all uh, this wonderful, wonderful afternoon. Uh, If you haven't met me before, my name's Coy. I'm the associate pastor here, and I am the proud, proud owner of a 2002 Toyota Camry. Uh, It's it's a bit ugly looking, but it's, it's gold, so I look upper class. And not long ago, it was diagnosed with a critical engine leak where it will overheat during drives. So it only functions if I fill up the engine with coolant water before every single drive. But my wife, Lena, she thinks that every time I do that, the duration of how far I can actually drive lessens each time before it will overheat. But my stubborn self, my stubborn and self-willed self, I have a soft spot for this car. It means a lot to me, so I never, never heed Lena's advice. She would always tell me, I bet you your car is going to die on the way. And I'd be like, nah, no way. This is my car. I'll drive to Sydney and I'll show you, right? I'll I'll make it. Just two weeks ago, my car overheated 10 minutes to come to church. And I had to stop for about five minutes to let it cool down and then drive another minute and then stop again for five minutes and then drive a minute and stop again for five minutes. Then the other week, it broke down on my way to my casual teaching job meaning other teachers had to cover for me on the day, and some of them are you. I really do apologise. <laughs> apologise, Heathdale teachers. Um, look, we've all been in this kind of situation before, haven't we, where we want something our way, no matter the cost. We're now in the third week of our King series, and today we're digging into the life and reign of this King, King Ahab, who, if you had to sum up in one sentence, It would be that he was a man who lived to do things his way. He was one of the most self-willed people, doing whatever he wanted despite the wisdom and wishes of what others said. But even worse, Ahab was notoriously known as one of the worst kings of Israel. Verse 30 and 33 of our Bible reading state, describe him as a man who did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. That Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger 
than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And it's a confronting description for a king who reigned over the people of God for 22 years. But it also shouldn't come as a surprise. Because as we heard, if you were here last week, there was a king before him named Jeroboam who was called by God to lead over the northern kingdom of Israel. He was a man of great potential, leadership and power, but he was also a man of great disobedience, defying God, creating his own God and religions. Jeroboam would turn those who he was supposed to lead towards the God Yahweh, worshipping the one true God, and he would turn them to worship graven images of fake gods. And so God would send judgment upon Jeroboam, telling him that he will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam. Chapter 13, 34, he says, And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. Which is what we'd see in the following chapters after that. After Jeroboam, as terrible king, after terrible king would arise out of his house and lead Israel, but each doing evil in the sight of the Lord with many of them described as this, described as walking in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which, which he made Israel to sin. So there's a context which leads us here to King Ahab, who is touted as the worst of them all. See, today we're going to be looking into King Ahab's life and his desire to do things his way while seeing some signs of him living like this. We're going to see the characteristics of a king who, one, allows ungodly influence, two, who has a small view of God, and three, a king who welcomes sin. And along the way, I'm going to be pulling out applications from his story and and how they relate to us. So as we dig right into the narrative, straight from the get-go, we see Ahab living how he wants to live by marrying an even more notorious name from this story, Queen Jezebel. So if you turn chapter 16, verse 31, and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, he took his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So the Sidonians, also a name for the Phoenicians, were a people who occupied the great cities of the time of Tyre and Sidon as they were increasingly becoming a threat to the powers of Israel. Ahab decided to marry Jezebel, who was the daughter of the king of Phoenicia, as a treaty in order to make an alliance with them. But the thing is, the Phoenicians were mainly known for one thing. They were known for their worship of the god Baal. Baal was considered the god of their land, the owner of it, the one who sustained it with his partner, uh, with his um, female partner, Asheroth. But what made things the worst, like truly the worst, was that Jezebel was the daughter of the king of Phoenicia. The king of Phoenicia wasn't only a political leader of his people, but he was also the high priest of their religion. His name literally translates to with Baal. So you can imagine for Ahab, he is marrying a woman whose life was ingrained with Baal worship, a true fanatic of her religion. And Ahab would have known that, marrying her. In no way would this decision have been wise or faithful as king of Israel who follows the true God, Yahweh. It would be like 
marrying Tom Cruise and hoping that you don't hear about Scientology. Like, you're going to hear about it. This was an extremely unwise, actually sinful move from the king of Israel. And we can see where it stemmed from, right? We can see where it stemmed from. As I read before, and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. Ahab didn't care much that he was living in disobedience to God. He saw it as a light thing to walk like the sinful king before him, Jeroboam. Ahab wanted to do it his way. He saw a threat to his power. So rather than trusting in God, he would rather trust in himself, marrying a woman steeped in Baal worship, which as we continue reading, we see had a huge impact on him as the reign uh, in his reign as king. Verse 32, he went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah, which is an idol of the partnering fertility goddess. See, what an atrocious sight of the king of Israel. The man chosen to lead God's people, and here he is blatantly building altars to another god and worshipping him. His wife's influence was clear. Jezebel had put her stamp in his reign as king. But it was Ahab who allowed this to happen. So here's our first sign of somebody who lives their own way. They willingly allow ungodly influence. I mean, this isn't the first time something like this has happened. Only a few kings ago, just two weeks when we heard from, uh, from the same series, the peak monarchy for Israel, led by King Solomon, who we know, he himself trusted his own devices, his own pride, marrying hundreds of women, many who swayed his heart from the Lord. He allowed their ungodly influence. Yet Solomon was still a godly man who was by no means perfect, but he lived for the Lord. But this wasn't the case for Ahab. He was a man who would have known and heard of the dodgy things that, ha- that the, the kings before him, the sinful kings before him went, uh, that went ahead of him, yet he still allowed himself to be influenced into horrendously ungodly living. Just how bad was this influence? Well, I'll explain it to you. As, as judgment for what Ahab had done, God brought about a drought across the land that lasted three years. And in those years, we read in chapter 18, verse 4, that Jezebel had cut off the prophets of the Lord. And in verse 13, she actually says, it actually says that she killed many of the prophets of the Lord with a prophet named Obadiah having to take a hundred other prophets and hiding them in a cave from her, feeding them bread and water all throughout the drought. See, here was a woman who wasn't simply satisfied with her religion being in Israel, but she had a goal to completely eradicate the worship of the God Yahweh, wanting all of Israel to bow down to her God, Baal, wanting every true prophet of God killed. This was her influence on Ahab. And Ahab was an advocate of this. Nowhere does it say that Ahab was against this idea or that he tried to stop it. I mean, he was now a worshipper of Baal himself. Why would he put a stop to this? His ungodliness is in full show here. Look at what Ahab says to the prophet Obadiah in verse 5. Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. 
This is how far Ahab had fallen. He was more concerned with preserving the animals during the drought than the very lives of the prophets of God who were being hunted and killed by orders of his wife. He had more care for the animals than he did the prophets of God. He had no concern for Yahweh's followers. Theologian Conkul says, there are two droughts in the land. While hunger from drought is severe, hunger for the prophets is caused by the wiles of a wicked woman. Ahab and Obadiah are not only going in different directions geographically in their search for water, they are in pursuit of opposing values. See, as Jezebel pursues the prophets, what we're seeing in God's word, what we're seeing is God's word and wisdom being, being squeezed out of the land. God's people are now not just starving for food, but starving for God's truth. But they don't even know it. All the while, the man who was supposed to lead God's people would rather listen to the ungodly words of his evil counterpart, attempting to wipe out God's truth in the land. This is what living my way does. We allow all the ungodly wisdom of the world to influence us. And there are so many, so many examples of this. Christians wanting to live their way, those who go into relationships with non-believers who then influence their own walk, the mum who suddenly believes they don't really need God because they're sustaining their family on their own, the well-off accountant who feels like they've earned everything themselves, so why do they need God? They can live how they want. Christians trusting worldly ideologies that influence how they view God and feel like, actually, God's not that important in my life. We like to think we're, all, we're in control of it all, like we are in the driving seat punching in the GPS location that we want and that we're capable of getting there ourselves. But we have to understand that it's not like that at all. If anything, we are in the driving seat, but us trusting in our own ways is more akin to us taking our hands off the wheel. And what you'll notice is the car won't stay straight. It will veer off the road very quickly. And you know why? It's because our natural alignment isn't straight, but it's crooked. Romans 3 says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Ahab, Jezebel, Jeroboam, you, me. Our hearts are filled with sin. And it's been like that ever since the first man and woman disobeyed the Lord in the garden in Genesis 3. Our natural inclination is to sin. We live in disobedience. And so when we feel like we can trust ourselves wholeheartedly, that we can live how we want because we know what's best for ourselves, that we can do things our way, we'll quickly find out that we're fooling ourselves. We'll be easily swayed by the worldliness around us because our sinful hearts are drawn to what? They're drawn to sin. Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, King Ahab needed to trust in the Lord and live according to the Lord's will, not his own. Remember the words of the Lord said to King Jeroboam, just last week we heard in chapter 11, verse 38, the Lord said this to King Jeroboam, and if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you 
and will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. This was the same for all the kings before and all the kings after who followed. Had Ahab obeyed the Lord, lived for the Lord, lived not his way but God's way, he would have seen the poor judgment in marrying basically the mascot for Baal worship. He would have avoided the influence of ungodliness to him and his whole kingdom. He would have been right in the eyes of the Lord, but he didn't. He trusted his self-will. He was influenced to ungodliness. And as what we'll see is that he, was, he will be made to pay for it. So what's next is chapter 20. And chapter 20 is quite a meaty one. And reading it, what you'll see is King Ahab, I'll summarize it for you. King Ahab uh, comes up against the king of Syria. Ben-Hadad is his name in what would be two battles. Ben-Hadad wanted to plunder the cities of Ahab. But after counsel from the elders, uh, Ahab decided to go to war with the king of Syria. And Ahab wins not just once, but twice, capturing Ben-Hadad, who in sackcloth pleads for his life to be spared. So chapter 20, verse 33, Ahab says, Go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he caused him up, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities that my father took from your father I will restore, and you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. So on the surface, this looks like a great, great gesture from King Ahab. He showed mercy to his opposing king, Ben-Hadad, he went to war with. But what we'd soon find out is that this was actually the worst thing King Ahab could do. See, right after those verses, we're met with this faithful prophet of the Lord who was going to be the bearer of bad news for King Ahab. The prophet was asked to be struck by another man as to disguise himself as injured in, in war to gain you know, Ahab's attention. So he does. And Ahab walks past and sees this injured prophet and stops, stops the prophet. And this is what the prophet tells him in verse 39. Your servant went out into the midst of battle and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. So basically, to explain, it was common that th around those times that during battle, if a person had been entrusted to guard a prisoner in war, who then the prisoner escapes, the person guarding must pay either with his life or an impossible financial penalty. So the prophet essentially was saying, I lost the prisoner that I had and was essentially asking Ahab for his intervention as king to save him from the punishment that he would receive. But how did Ahab respond? He responds in verse 40, So shall your judgment be, you yourself have decided it. So Ahab is basically saying to the prophet, there's no excuse for this. You are irresponsible letting your prisoner go. You brought the penalty on yourself. You did the crime, you do the time, is what King Ahab says to him. But what Ahab didn't realise was that this, this was a prophet of the Lord. He didn't know it was a prophet who was there to test him and to reveal King Ahab's own ways. Verse 41, Then the prophet hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognised him as one of the prophets. 
And the prophet said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. See, Ahab didn't see that he essentially did the same exact thing and worse. He not only let go the king of Syria, who he just went to war with, who was his enemy, he actually made a covenant with his enemy as a means of gain. Theologian John Woodhouse says, Ahab's treatment of Ben-Hadad may have looked like an act of kindness, but it was an act of disobedience to the word of the Lord that we have now all heard. So we may be asking, why was it so bad that Ahab showed mercy to the opposing king? We have to understand that, in those, that during those days, there were nations of people who made themselves enemies to God's people. Kings and nations who wanted to reign over and destroy the people of, Israel, the people of God, Israel. But God would show time and time again that he was with his people giving them victories in battles that they, most of the time they had no business winning. See, in those ancient times, there were often holy wars where God would summon his people to defeat his enemies because these nations had made themselves enemies with God. And so God's people were often, asked, uh, were often being asked to execute God's judgment against those nations oftentimes a a complete wiping out of the opposing nations, signifying the might and the victory of the God Yahweh to all his enemies. See, these enemy nations were not just alien but sinful, and God often judged them through his people. So here King Ahab was called by God to go to battle against the king of Syria to exact his judgment upon his enemies. And look at what he was told before he went into battle. This is what God tells Ahab. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am Lord. God had promised Ahab victory over Ben-Hadad. God had deemed Ben-Hadad an enemy of not just Israel, but an enemy of God himself. And so the entirety of this enemy needed to be eliminated. That was the reality, which is what makes makes Ahab's poor decision so serious. Because in verse 32, Ahab, upon hearing the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, is alive, he actually calls him his brother. He's like, Ben-Hadad, my brother, is he alive? I kid you not, he called him his bro. And he just went to war with him. This is how silly this man Ahab is. First of all, how remarkable that God would promise Ahab victory despite Ahab being so, so evil. That alone says more about the grace and mercy of God than it does the leadership of Ahab. But second of all, back to what Ahab did, how foolish the people of God look who kept alive their enemy's king. How small does God look to other nations that Ahab would even make a covenant with the opposing king? Was the God who gave Ahab victory even in his mind when he made such a poor decision? I don't think so. And here's the second sign of somebody who lives their own way. They have a small view of God. 
See, what I just shared about the, the need for complete destruction of God's enemies wasn't something that was unknown in ancient times. King Ahab would have known that God's requirement in, for these victories in war was to obey him in full. To keep any remnants of the enemy intact was to, to flirt with the possibility of them contaminating the people of God with their ungodly culture and ungodly living. But Ahab didn't care for this. He didn't care much for what God had to say in his life. Even when things were undeservingly given to him, he would rather make a pact with the opposing bro, the opposing king, than to consider God's will in this matter. We can be sure that Ahab had a small view of God because never in this war narrative, in all of chapter 20, do we see Ahab seek the Lord's guidance. He never sought out the prophets to ask for God's direction at critical moments. He never prayed or even considered God in his decision-making. Ahab, after, even after being told what he, did, what he did wrong and what will happen to him, he didn't seek the Lord in repentance. But verse 43, tell, 43 tells us, do you know what King Ahab does? He was vexed, sullen. He basically sulks after hearing this. He had a small view of God because he wanted to do things his way. And I think this is a temptation that many of us easily fall into. When there are decisions to be made in our lives, we find ourselves not prayerful. When we need help and guidance, we'd prefer to seek the words of people, our friends, or self-help rather than God's word. When we need things done, seek outcomes that we want. We trust in our, in our own strength, rely on ourselves rather than trusting in God's spirit within us. But we don't realize when we go about life this way, our view of God becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. We're only happy and praise him when, he, when we get what we want. We're only coming to God in earnest prayer when we're at our lowest or when we need something. We only go into his word in seasons where we actually have time. We view subtly, uh, we, 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 view, we subtly view God as more of a, a genie who appears and every now and then and gives us what we want. Ahab's view of God was exactly like this. The God who would appear every now and then and just give him good things. He appeared and said, I will give you victory over Syria. And then he disappears. That's how Ahab saw him. Be careful not to believe the lie that we can live how we want. It might just make God so small in your life to you that he's no longer there. See, so far we've seen some pretty appalling leadership by the king of Israel, Ahab. But what follows in chapter 21 is probably his worst. What we're about to see is the last characteristic of, uh, one of somebody who lives for themselves as we see Ahab live a life that three, welcomes sin. So as some of you may know, as most of you may know, I recently became a father and Elijah is my son. He's turning one very soon and I've enjoyed every minute of it, every minute of it and I love it, just love seeing him learn new things like he's learning. So he crawls a lot now, loves to talk, he likes to eat. But there are also some things that I don't love so much that he's learning. Uh, he's also learned now to uh, get upset when he doesn't get his way. 
So there'll be moments where it's like, no, Elijah, don't touch that. That's not good for you. There's times where I'm just seriously on the toilet and you just see him opening the door. It's like, Elijah, please let me have my time. You know, and then when I say no, he'll go away crying and sulking. It's, it's, it's tough, right? Parenthood is tough. But you'd imagine that for a parent. It's, it's not, not for a parent, for an infant, that they're sulking, that they like to sook nowadays. That's a part of it. They're a child. Of course, that's what, that's what you'd expect from an infant. They're so young, they don't know better. They're still sinners, but they don't know better. We get it. But for the king of Israel, a man called to lead the nation that is God's people, you wouldn't expect that. In fact, if he did something exactly like what Elijah did, he would be deemed a fool, childish and immature. And that's exactly what Ahab does. In chapter 21, we see that next to Ahab's palace was this wonderful vineyard owned by a man named Naboth. And Ahab saw it and he wanted it. But Naboth says to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Which, Nahab, which Naboth sorry, was actually right in saying that to the king. See, theologian Conkul says, Naboth refuses Ahab's offer of purchase from the viewpoint of ancestral inheritance. All the land belongs to God. The Israelites are sojourners. It is not their prerogative to sell land in perpetuity or to alienate it from the family. So Naboth was simply obeying the law of the Lord. He was doing the right thing by not selling the king his vineyard. So what does the king of Israel do? Verse 4, And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. He sulks. The king has a sook. He goes home and turns away and he cries. He really always, he really does always want his own way. He's the leader of Israel, yet he acts like a child. He sooks like a spoiled kid, which so much reflects his lack of wisdom and godliness. But the scary thing is he has the power of a king, which should make anyone nervous because, as we heard last week, power in the wrong hands can be devastating, which is what we're about to see. Chapter 21, verse 5. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Ahab didn't get what he wanted. And what he wanted was actually against the law of God. But we'd see here, what we're already seeing here is all my points so far revealed, that he wanted, his, he wanted to live his way. So he allowed influence, he allowed the influence of his wife Jezebel to get it for him. He wanted to live his way so that even though it was unlawful against the law of God, he had a small view of God, so he didn't care. So what does Jezebel do? She goes out and she sets a trap for Naboth, the owner of the vineyard, making it seem like he disobeyed the king and disobeyed God which was at that time a capital offence, resulting in Naboth being stoned to death. What a saddening end for Naboth. And what a despicable act from Jezebel and Ahab. Look how Ahab responds to all this, 
how he was in all this. Verse 16, And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. He hears that this man died and he simply goes down and just grabs the vineyard for himself. It almost seems like Ahab's too far gone that the king of God's people wouldn't even bat an eyelid that a man was killed for his vineyard all because Ahab wanted it for himself. No care, no guilt, no repentance. He got what he wanted. And notice that a grave sin has just occurred on King Ahab's watch, a sin by him, and nowhere does it say that Ahab was affected. His conscience was seared. His living his own way for so long has meant that he welcomes sin into his life that it no longer phases him. It was almost like he expected Jezebel to get him what he wanted and he didn't care how it would be done, even if it was the worst ways possible. The king of Israel no longer had a line to go between what was righteous and sinful living. And if he did, it was extremely blurred. Ahab allowed the influence of of idol worship to take hold of him and his kingdom. His view of the true God, Yahweh, had become become instinctively smaller. And now we can plainly see that sin had no effect on him. Because he no, no longer truly follows the Lord. He welcomes sin at every turn, giving into more of his inclinations. His hands are completely off the wheel as the car is miles, miles off the road. And it's a scary sight. It's a scary sight that even the king of God's people could fall so far by simply wanting to live his own way. It reminds me of the second half of Romans chapter 1 where it talks about God giving up the unrighteous, to their sinful desires. And I think it's especially scary because none of us are immune. We too can get to this point where sin no longer phases us. I think of a time in my past life where I was angry with God for taking me away from everything I loved. And so I wanted to live for who? For myself. I didn't want to go to church anymore or see church people, so I left. I wanted to freely give into my unhealthy desires, lust, greed, pride, selfishness. I lived in a matter where sin no longer phased me. You wouldn't have recognized a Christian compared to a non-Christian who was out on the weekend doing what people do on the weekend. I no longer saw it as unrighteous living, but simply saw it as living. It took God's gracious intervention through an atheist friend of mine not not believing that I could ever possibly be a Christian to bring me back. See, when we want to live our way, we so easily welcome sin into our lives because that's where we always naturally lean. And as Ahab saw, there are consequences to that. See, this whole time I haven't even mentioned the prophet Elijah who has been involved in various points of Ahab's life events. And here... After Ahab has Naboth killed and takes his vineyard, Elijah, the prophet Elijah, gave the word from the Lord to Ahab, saying in verse 21 of chapter 21, Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel, 
and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Aja, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Confronting. The evil God saw, displeased him greatly. And both Ahab and Jezebel would be made to pay for it. The idolatry, the disregard to follow God's commandments, the selfish greed that cost a man his life, all seen by the Lord who foretells Ahab of his exacting judgment that will come his way. See, King Ahab was the greatest of sinners. In fact, chapter 21, verse 25, actually serves as a reminder to readers of just how sinful he was. That verse simply in brackets describes him of of who he is, just a straight-up sinner. And yet in the verses straight after that reminder, we're told of the first time King Ahab showing any semblance of living faithfully to the Lord. See, after hearing these words from Elijah of what's going to come his way, Ahab genuinely repented, distressed, fasting, humbling himself before the Lord. And what did the Lord do? The Lord showed him mercy. The Lord saying to Elijah, because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. So even though Ahab described as the most wicked of the kings of Israel, looked absolutely hopeless. God didn't see him this way. Woodhouse says that Ahab's punishment was not revoked, but the Lord gladly postponed it. This is the magnificent glimpse of God's eagerness to have mercy. Just this act alone says so much about our God. See, this story of Ahab has been a rather grim one. It's not one you read to your kids. And in the next chapter over, in chapter 22, Ahab actually goes on to do more foolish things as he prefers to listen to false prophets, to false yes-men over a faithful one. And so what do they do? They tell him to go into battle, which he listens to the yes-men, and then he dies by a random arrow. And yet in a story of a life so sinful and grim, what's contrasted along these six chapters all along the way is the story of a God so merciful and so mighty. See, where we'd see Ahab influenced into ungodliness and idolatry, we'd also see that God would use his faithful prophet Elijah as a beacon of light to his people, as seen in chapter 17. Where we'd see Ahab's view of God of, as, as view of God as small and insignificant in his life, we'd also see one of the more well-known events in Scripture, where Elijah, the prophet Elijah, would come up against the 450 prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel to prove to, to prove whose God was the true one. Where the Lord would display not how small he was, but just how big and almighty he was to all who were there and saw, which you can see in chapter 18 where we'd see Ahab welcome sin and let it rule over his life, we'd also see a God so gracious and merciful to even the worst of kings, 
God allowed the drought to end. He gave victories to Ahab. He even postponed the judgment on his house. See, Ahab really was one of, if not the worst, kings of Israel. And I'd imagine that for the faithful people of God during Ahab's reign, surely, surely they would have cried out to God saying, God, this can't be the king that is meant to bless us. Ahab can't be the one whom you promised to establish your kingdom forever. He can't be. And they'd be right. See, as we heard over the past two weeks, these wayward kings of Israel were a consequence of Israel demanding God to give them a king now. God gave them what they wanted, but these kings were just like any other men, any other women. They were imperfect. They were flawed. They were sinners. And yet, what God was doing was in his beautiful, planned will because he was setting in motion the king that was to come that no other king would pale in comparison to, who every other king would pale in comparison, his very own son, Jesus. See, like Ahab, Jesus too could have been influenced by ungodly things, but not just by a person like Jezebel, but by Satan himself who tempted Jesus to show his divine power and to bow down to him. Yet as read in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus doesn't give in. Instead, proclaiming words from Scripture and remaining faithful, Jesus used God's word to combat ungodly influence. See, while the king of Israel lived for himself, the king of kings lived for his father. Unlike Ahab, who had a small view of God, Jesus was the opposite, prayerful wherever Jesus went, going to his Father in all things, the Word and Spirit of God guiding Jesus' life, trusting and relying on the Lord's strength. He didn't have a small view of God, but he had a proper view of God. While the King of Israel lived for himself, the King of kings lived for his Father. Ahab, who had every turn welcomed sin, and deserved his just punishment out of his disobedience and wickedness. Jesus, who came down to the earth, welcomed sinners, taking on our just punishment out of his love and grace. See, while the king of Israel lived for himself, the king of kings died for us. First Peter 3 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. There is no other king like Jesus who gave up his life for our sin, that we may be his. He is the king who has established his kingdom forever, the gracious, merciful, reigning Saviour, King. Revelations 1 says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, the last line of the book of 1 Kings tells us of 
the dreadful legacy left behind by King Ahab. The last line of 1 Kings says, it says, Ahaziah, just like his father Ahab, provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. See, 1 Kings closes with a saddening, somber summary of how it, been, how it had been for God's people up to that point. For readers then, the only hope for Israel at the end of this book was the promised son of David, the coming king. For readers today, for us sitting here now, we can trust wholeheartedly that this hope for God's people and the world has now come. Even though we've read of this, these countless terrible, sinful kings and their fates in this book, we can hold on to these words describing the king of kings. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is our king. Live for him. Let's pray. Father God, we uh, thank you for your word, Lord. In your word, we see a picture of a king so far from you, a king so sinful, so despicable, that he'd have the notorious name as the worst king of Israel, Lord. And yet we see your grace and mercy in your hand upon it all. Lord, we thank you that King Ahab was not the promised king. We thank you, Lord, that it was the king of kings, Jesus, who would be the king to reign over all for eternity, the promised king that you've given us. And Lord, while we look at King Ahab and shake our heads, we know that we so easily do the same things that he does because we too are sinners. But Lord, we thank you that you gave your only son, Jesus, to die for us, to take on our just punishment, that we may have life in him, that you may establish your kingdom forever and that we may be in your presence, in your kingdom forever, for eternity. Enjoy worshipping you and in your presence. So, Father, we thank you that the coming King has come and that we have such a wonderful Saviour in Jesus who lived wholeheartedly for you, who shown us how to live for you, who had a proper view of you, a God who loves us, a Saviour who died for us, a Jesus who gave us his life. We thank you, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.